Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Chelsea Manning has been subpoenaed to testify before a grand jury and vows to fight it. Chelsea stated for the New York Times, quote, Given what is going on, I am opposing this. I want to be very forthright that I've been subpoenaed. I don't know the parameters of the subpoena apart from that I am expected to appear. I don't know what I'm going to be asked, unquote. Her legal team will be filing a motion today, March 1st, to quash the subpoena. In a narrow vote, the Los Angeles County Supervisors recently approved a plan to raise the men's central jail in downtown Los Angeles and to construct at least one mental health treatment center in its place. The Department of Health Services, instead of the Sheriff's Department, would manage the new facility. The new building, to be called the Mental Health Treatment Center, would be staffed by the Department of Mental Health, with a small number of deputies to provide security. Two supervisors voted against the plan, saying it would allow a huge building with thousands of beds to be built. This would lead to poor outcomes in those suffering from mental illness. The plan has plenty of critics in the community. They argue that the billions of dollars for a new jail-like facility would be better spent on re-entry programs, supportive housing, community-based services, and other alternatives. They also favor decentralized treatment centers. In the past months, the California prison system, or CDRC, has been convulsed by hunger strikes and a series of so-called gladiator fights in which guards pit prisoners against each other. Brooke, an organizer with the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee in Oakland, spoke with us to provide vital context for understanding this volatile situation, as well as the recent updates on the movement inside Kokorin, one of the more infamous of these maximum security prisons. Brooke explains in detail the history of these fights and also how gang culture thrives inside prisons, often as a way to give prisoners protection and an identity in facilities where the purpose is to remove such things from its prisoners. As Brooke puts it, having your crew allows you to have such things as communication, identity, protection, even sunlight, all things that the state explicitly tries to take from you. The bigger picture essentially dates from 2010, 2011. Before 2010, there is in effect a, a highly volatile state of war between different population segments or like racial affiliations or umbrella groups or structures. The hit a yard during that period um, in the maximum security facilities, but out here it's called level three and four, was essentially to, to jump into the middle of an ongoing battle. Um, this battle is also highly fueled by CDCR. A divided population is an easily ruled population. Um, it's easy to disrupt. It's easy to validate people as, quote, gang members, unquote, which was pretext for long-term sequesterment and solitary called the SHU, secure housing units, um, of which there were four in the state. They basically could isolate uh, key political figures. 
In 2011, the first hunger strikes hit. And they were the product of an interracial collective that was formed within these shoes in Pelican Bay, like the deepest and darkest, most northernmost facility in California. That's essentially six, 700 miles from the nearest city. They housed rivals next to each other in the hopes of it essentially being an additional layer of summary punishment. It's typical to house Nazis next to black nationalists, Southern Mexicans next to Northern Mexicans, in addition that it provides an extra layer of stress and punishment. In this case, the Short Quarter Collective is what they eventually call themselves, developed an understanding and a political practice between themselves. And essentially because they had high ranks within these inside prison uh, structures, and lots of experience and were essentially um, had nothing left to lose. They helped organize hunger strikes against the use of long-term solitary. In 2012, what evolved out of this between the major population segments, namely the whites, uh, the blacks, the Southern Mexicans and the Northern Mexicans, plus like 19 others signatures from other um, factions within the system was an agreement to end hostilities. Essentially a calling an end to um, interracial hostility between these segments, taking a tool away from CDCR and transforming the yards. Yard violence immediately was cut in half, you know, at least, if, if not even more in certain facilities. It's uh, available publicly online and it declared like terms of uh, truce between them, but also declarations of who was the real predator in this situation. And that was CDCR the California Department of Corrections and so-called rehabilitation. 2013 saw the hunger strikes escalate, you know, tenfold to some even estimate 70,000 people within a system um, locking up 140,000 like going on hunger strike at the beginning and essentially resulted in the Asker v. Brown um, settlement in 2015 which revised all the terms for one, gang validation, but two, also what's called the step-down procedure for getting out of um, long-term solitary, which before that was a complete joke. It was a trap. People had been doing long-term solitary, essentially being locked in a concrete closet um, with very limited access to people, time, or sunshine for decades at a time. Simultaneously with this settlement being negotiated, the, we have since learned that also being concocted within CDCR was um, a plan called reintegration, quote unquote. That summer of 2015, the terms of the settlement were being negotiated with the outside advocate lawyers on the hunger strike and long-term solitary, which was an essential tool to CDCR for controlling prisoner populations. That was being taken away. So simultaneously, was a new plan being called reintegration, where they are essentially weaponizing sensitive needs yards or protected custody, like SNYs or PCs, to be forcibly like thrown into general populations or main lines in order to stir up conflict and <clears throat> provide con pretext for people being thrown back into the shoe. Now in 2019, in 2018 actually come September, we saw a conflict between a non-signatory to the agreement, a group called the Fresno Bulldogs within a half dozen facilities and a couple counties within California, attack Southern Mexicans. They 
essentially went into lockdown at Corcoran, where these took place, and have been under lockdown ever since. You know, Southern Mexicans. The Bulldogs have not been under lockdown. They've been allowed a certain amount of programming. So in concert with the reintegration plan, there is now a plan across multiple facilities within California to forcibly uh, make rival groups or like signatories of the agreement and non-signatories like yard together and program together. Whereas previous plans in these facilities or um, what they call programming status reports um, were essentially plans for separation between these groups were thrown out and new ones were written up. Now when they yard together, it's a guaranteed fight. And the primary group being targeted by these forced fights are uh, Southern Mexicans. Although they've happened between whites, between black groups, and <clears throat> the main group that have been targeted is the largest and most influential inside, the Southerners. And Corcoran is one of the most serious, and um, like, I don't know, it's kind of one of the, except for the shoe, like Corcoran is like the most serious like uh, facility in, in the state. So they essentially picked a flagship facility known for its brutality to try out this forcible yard policy. Under the guise of making groups get along, they're essentially doing um, gladiator fights, releasing two prisoners, four prisoners from one faction onto a yard, and then dumping two or four from another that are guaranteed to, to fight. And actually under orders to, um, not, to not yard with these non-signatories. When you're affiliated with any of these umber, like umbrella organizations, part of the way they maintain cohesion and discipline is by a hierarchical structure and uh, discipline. So essentially, whenever you hit the yard, you better follow orders and go to war with this rival faction. And that's what is what it is. You know, perhaps in the future, negotiation and a truce might be possible because before the agreement to end hostilities, who would have thought that the AB and the white supremacists would be able to sign an agreement with like BGF of the Black Gorilla family or Black Nationalists, but it's possible. But at the moment, there are irreconcilable differences. So CDCR knows this, and it's been executing a policy at multiple facilities, not just Corcoran, but also uh, Pleasant Valley State Prison, also uh, CTF Soledad, which is a correctional training facility, Soledad, um, and a couple others, all in the same region that both house uh, Southern Mexicans and other groups, as well as this outlier group, Fresno Bulldogs. So essentially it's laying down an ultimatum. It's like you succumb to CDCR's uh, organization of prison society and surrender all of your own loyalties and survival mechanisms and loyalties, or else you will basically be fought like dogs in the yard at the whims of sadists. And that's pretty much our current situation. Corcoran made the news in a huge way, in, in a rare way, in 95, 96, 97, a story broke. In its secure housing unit, in its long-term solitary, guards were essentially setting up matches between prisoners and even betting on them, bringing snacks, also shooting them dead when the fight didn't go the way they wanted to or that it wasn't the, their fight or they picked the win when they bet. Five men lost their lives between 1990 and 1996. Prisoners and their families and their advocates had been vocal about this happening for quite some time. And this is a common practice, really, that had gone to an extreme. I mean, it's a common practice all across facilities in the United States. And I'm sure your incarcerated listeners will know exactly what I'm talking about and the families. 
um, when we talk about gladiator fights or dog fights. It's, it's a known practice for stoking hostility and gratifying either guards, uh, you know, sadism, or even, you know, an extension of, you know, a DOC policy in terms of stirring up conflict between racial groups. But in CDCR, there was a guard that blew the whistle. It made the news. It made state assembly hearings. It made 60 minutes. So Corcoran and gladiator matches became synonymous. Now, the difference we have now between that and then is that this is not a guard culture run amok. At least that was the narrative back in the 90s. It was basically, you know, guard gangs. Um, they do have gangs. Guards have their own gangs and cliques. But it was guard gangs and guard culture run amok, theoretically under, you know, the inept management of a warden that hit his eyes, you know, that kept his head down. But at least that was the narrative then. It's policy now. It's coming from above. The guards are not arranging these fights. And some of the responses from CDCR recently are playing stupid, saying, like, denying the guards are not you know, setting up these fights. And it's like, that is not our accusation. Our charge is that these orders are coming from above. It's multiple facilities, like, doing this simultaneously. It, it fits within the timeline of CDCR attempting to control and mass its populations with violence and destabilization. Wardens at other facilities have even been anecdotally reported as uh, complaining that they are not deciding that this happened, but that they're being ordered to from Sacramento. So essentially what was a sensationalist story in the 90s was only a breaking through to the public of a common practice within jails and prisons, but within CDCR at the moment is um, a strategy and a policy coming from headquarters. CDCR is completely opaque. It has to be sued in order to release the slightest information. It releases no racial demographics, and the only reason we have numbers on its own racial demographics is through federally available numbers that it makes available to the Department of Justice. The reason as a why now, I think it's due to the, the end of the observation and follow-up period to the Asker versus Brown settlement that came in the wake of the hunger strikes. Last year, it came to a halt. There was like a two-year like observation and negotiation period between lawyers, judges, and CDCR regarding follow-up on the terms of that. I think uh, CDCR is counting it as a victory and a green light to proceed because this period is over and they've managed to basically maneuver around the restrictions of long-term solitary and being able to wield it over the heads of prisoner populations. I think they've reconciled themselves to solitary not being able to be used in the same way that it was before, almost completely without oversight and arbitrarily. So they're, in effect, forced to confront the power of prisoner organizations on the inside in a new way. And these questions of these outlier populations being a problem or being an available weapon for CDCR has always been there. It's kind of always been before us, but now the questions come to a head. Both protective custodies, SNYs, or sensitive need yard populations, and these non-signatories to the agreement, like the Fresno, you know, organization, are now available to be weaponized against the mainline, against general populations. So CDCR is just simply seeing the opening and taking it. CDCR has a reputation for being an experimenter, for being on the leading edge of developing new means of surveillance and control and isolation. They led the way in developing the, the SHU, long-term solitary. They are on the forefront of basically investigation, uh, manipulation, and exacerbation of like inside so-called gang culture, unquote. They never stay still. 
they're professionalized. It's a highly professionalized system. It's not provincial in any sense. It's huge. It is the largest agency within our state government. Only education has a bigger budget, but that's spent through different agencies and split up. CDCR has an $11 billion budget. It never stays still. To stay still is to essentially fall behind because the quote CLR James, the people are always rebelling. Prisoners are always resisting in some form or another. So if they like sat on their laurels and let prisoners organize, or even didn't try to innovate and stay ahead of them and instigate this kind of violence and division, they would uh, lose an advantage. It's a game of chess between opponents and they're making moves, simply put. There's a fine line here in what I can say and what should be said. Much of this country already understands the need to band together and what the reality is between so-called gang, you know, and cult culture. And I'm not going to use the term anymore because it's completely state generated. I'll refer to them as population segments or organizations or street organizations. To examine the history of gangs is essentially to unearth uh, a history of oppressed peoples defending themselves against white mob violence. That is how uh, these so-called you know, street organizations formed in L.A. and other cities was essentially a self-defense against roving white mobs that would essentially kill, you know, steal and burn at, at whim. Now, inside, it's no different. It's essentially a survival response to a system that induces scarcity and deprivation and hardship and death and terror as a form of business, as usual, as part of its normal practice. Its, its job is to crush you, is to dehumanize you, and also as a, an extension of a settler colonial project, it's to basically atomize and destroy your identity and cohesion as a people, whether it be the descendant of slaves or the descendant of colonialism and indigeneity, or even your, you know, identity as a queer person, or even if it's as a white dropout, you know, that's non-compliant with, with the demands of settler colonialism. You know, in the big historical picture, that is what prison's purpose is. Now, in the inside, the only ways that you can secure or defend yourself are to collectively organize. Now, either to secure, like, food, protection, identity, even agency, purpose, even your name. You're given a number. Within your crew, you still have a name. You are denied uh, links to the outside. But due to your ability to send messages to other people or through whatever means available, you can maintain communication if you're affiliated. If you're beat up or thrown into the hole, half the isolation is taken away because you have other people watching your back. On the yard, when DOCs are successful at stoking racial violence or there's ladder stuff, you have people to help defend you. You also have a sense of purpose and belonging and you put in your own work defending others. So, like, belonging, identity, pride, survival, sunlight, communication, you know, purpose, agency, all these are supplied by your clique, your set, or your organization. These are all things that the state explicitly tries to take from you. What, what makes a so-called gang? The key feature of a so-called gang in the eyes of the state is non-cooperation with the state. You know, that is what distinguishes one prisoner group from another. And, like, why don't there prisoner associations to basically provide all those things or organizing? Well, prisoners tried. They were taken away, smashed, criminalized, or beheaded. 
So essentially, the DOCs have all the organizations, like inside and problems that they deserve. They help create them. Even they help, like some in some cases, manipulate and hold one up over the other in order to sow division or to create partners with which to negotiate. So, I mean, in terms of a shorthand, that's basically what I can give you in terms of the value and purpose and, like, why they exist. In the end of September, uh, southern Mexicans were attacked by an outlier group triggering the aforementioned lockdown. CDCR calls it modified program, but they're playing word games. You know, we live in the real world. To be denied visitation, to be denied canteen, to be denied all educational rehabilitation programming, and to be denied all yard time except for being fought like dogs, that is a lockdown. Like, stop playing. We're not children. That's a lockdown. On January, the beginning of the January, the Southern Mexicans initiated a hunger strike that saw 270 people participating across five units. They refused trays for approximately three weeks. At the end, 245 were still on hunger strike with many, you know, dropping out due to, like, you know, heart pain, uh, shortness of breath, and all the other problems when, you know, your body starts to consume itself when you deny it food. Cells had been raided for all commissary, you know, once the hunger strike had started. It wasn't just a food strike where people refused trays. It was a straight-up hunger strike. They wanted it made public, and eventually word got to IWOC, and we helped put together, like, a phone pressure action with families from two days, like in January 22nd or 23rd, I believe. That immediately escalated things, where they immediately threw down sand pipes, which are uh, sandbags that are, like, long, that like, cover up all the gaps underneath doorways to basically keep people from either trading food or medicine or trying to block communication. Also, at the same time, these dog fights were continuing to go on. Like, every week, there'd be another instance of, like, either a two-on-two or a four-on-four, and not just between Southern Mexicans and this outlier group, but between whites and blacks as well. So, essentially, you're starving to death in your cell, you know, trying to get the outside to take notice, you know, trying, hoping that they understand, like, something of inside politics to throw down with you. And IWOC was in a position to do so and was proud to do so. You know, families have stepped up in a big way, especially since the public call for phone action. That essentially gave cover to a lot of families to start stepping forward and organizing themselves and essentially throwing off shame or, you know, their silence in order to come forward and organize. And there have been outside protests out in the middle of nowhere in the Central Valley, like every weekend, for like four weeks at one facility or another. Essentially, the families would come out because like they say to themselves, like, we'd be here anyways visiting, you know, except there is no visitation. So on the outside, they gather and meet each other and then march down the fence to like, you know, yell their love through a megaphone over the fence. So we found out they were also happening in Soledad and Pleasant Valley, these dogfights. The lockdown is most severe at Corcoran, but right now it isn't. Uh, an interracial like organizing program, although many different segments are affected, it's primarily the the southerners that have maintained cohesion and that called for the hunger strike. On the 28th of January, immediately after the phone pressure campaign, the warden called a meeting with what's called MAC reps, like Men's Advisory Council representatives, which are essentially representatives that are sometimes appointed to like you know communicate with prison staff. 
promise them like canteen beyond hygiene, like being able to actually buy food again and get packages and to negotiate a yard schedule to separate them from that other rival faction that intends them harm. They sat back a week to see what would happen, and they suspended the hunger strike. The warden reneged on everything. Um, it was essentially a political maneuver in order to break the strike. So right now, the, we're saying that the hunger strike is simply suspended with the inside negotiating like what next steps are. Uh, some of that has been uh, calling for media work you know, for outside supporters to try to generate from the inside. Uh, right now, I'm sure there are negotiations and discussions about like what next to do. If you're in California, get involved with like either IWOC or the family. If you're close to these institutions, like come lend support on the weekends that they're called. And the families um, will call them through their Facebook pages, and IWOC pretty reliably mirrors their calls. We also do it on Twitter. The people unacquainted or like not directly connected people inside, the best thing that they can do is respond to calls for phone pressure actions or demonstrations. Right now, I think there's tentatively a rally being called for Sacramento on the 22nd of March. Um, so I'd stay tuned to attend or boost that. Other than that, it's it's a complicated situation that demands like direct connection to the facilities in order to organize. So it's not something you can just jump right into. But if this sounds like the sort of thing that you think you want to put your primary political work into, I would say start reaching out to IWOC or to other serious like abolitionist organizations that do support work directly with prisoners, like not on behalf of or just with policy, but directly work with prisoners and like get involved in that way. Because we, there's definitely not enough people that work directly with the inside. There's an abundance of policy talking heads and a lot of people like to grab the mic and essentially grab the social capital of prisoners and, and run with it. But there are a lot of organizations out there that don't. So if you, if this kind of fight like sounds like your thing, like, Put in the work to make it your thing and like link up with that organization wherever you are. But I would like to say though that any of these conflicts inside are subject to the negotiated realities and agreements between prisoner groups already. Inside every prison, there's a mini society. There's own agreements, its own code, its own statuses, its own like, you know, manners and like protocols on any yard, on any tier, within a cell, even with just two people in it, there's a negotiated understanding, you know, between prisoners. They have agency. They organize their own world as best they can, like within the hellish environment that they've inherited or been subjected to. So it, it's no surprise for prisoners to be able to organize agreements en masse across yards or across, you know, racial divisions. And in fact, when actually supported in good faith, like not in the bad faith and like instigatory and violent way that DOCs like force domination like over them, but in good faith, like prisoners can negotiate like agreements between themselves. So any of these conflicts that are being weaponized, the only real approach forward that like lives in the real world, dealing with what is and what people do and what history has told us means putting the prisoners ability to negotiate between themselves and come to understandings first. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. 
For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. If you or someone you care about has been affected by the prison system, you can call us to be interviewed or to record a message to be played on the air at 812-269-2512. We also want your feedback and to share your story. Feel free to write us at KiteLine at wfhb.org. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. If you want to support our work, you can find us at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio Show. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.